Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. I have taught and worked in schools across metropolitan and regional Australia, and I am dedicated to supporting big-hearted educators to prioritise their wellbeing and take courageous action despite the everyday pressures of school life. Because I want educators to know, you don't have to sacrifice your health, relationships, and happiness to be a great teacher. Together, we are going to learn the lessons to help us teach well and be well. Let the learning begin. Hello and welcome to the School of Wellbeing Best of 2023 series. Today, I am sharing my conversation with experienced principal and ACL president, Dr. Bryony Scott. In this conversation, we explore the invisible demands of school life and practical ways to avoid being swallowed up by the system. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Bryony Scott. Bryony, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Today, we're going to be talking about the invisible load that teachers and school leaders carry every day. Why do you think this is such an important topic to discuss? I'm not sure it is completely invisible. I think most people who work in education and work in schools are acutely aware of the load. I just don't think it's immediately invisible to people outside of the profession. And I understand why. And in that sense, I don't think we're any different than any other profession in that if I watch like an ice skater in the Olympics and I think, gosh, that looks so easy, I could do that too. You know, What I don't see is the sheer number of hours and talent and work that's gone into producing an outstanding performance on the rink. Or if I look at a surgeon and, and I go, I actually have no idea apart from getting a scalpel and going, you know, let's go kind of thing. I don't know what they do. It's, it is all behind the scenes. So in one sense, I think we're different than any other profession in that we have a huge core part of what we do that is not visible to people who are outside the profession looking in. I think the difference is that I don't spend my life critiquing ice skaters and surgeons. The challenge with us in the profession who work here is that we have a whole world watching us, critiquing us, judging our performance all the time around how we're going with no recognition or acknowledgement of what you have to do to produce this end result. And that I think is a challenge and it's so overwhelming at times, I think, because we're often asked to justify ourselves and to justify what we're doing. I go, where do I begin? Like, wh- where would you like me to start? It's actually far easier just to go, you know what, don't worry about it. You then get this ground swallow by the criticism or commentary around what we should be doing, could be doing, would be doing, you know, all of these kind of expectations based on just on what people see and they experience with a sample size of one, and then they generalize. So that I think is the difference with our profession compared to other professions. That is so true. And as you're talking, I'm just thinking, and it's quite obvious now that I think about it, everyone has been to school or had some experience of school. We haven't all been a surgeon or been an ice skater, but we've all been to school. And so a lot of our opinions, our thoughts, our beliefs can be based on our own school experience and think, well, this is what my teachers did, so this is what teachers do. So they get a sample size of one and then they generalise to the entire population. That It's ever been us, like in education, because everyone has had first experience, everyone is technically an expert, and when it comes to their own education, they are an expert. They do know what they experience. They do know 
the implications of what they experienced and what they did as a result. It's the human nature tendency to then take that and apply that everywhere. That is one of the problematic aspects of this invisible load that you're referring to, where all of a sudden you're fighting a fight that you knew nothing about because it has actually to do with the fact that back in year eight, that mother was rejected by her friendship group or back in year three, a child was told that they weren't very bright, you know. And so you're dealing with other people's experiences that are being superimposed onto an environment that's not necessarily yours. So that people management side of it, I think, is a core part of the role that isn't necessarily replicated in other professions. Now, I know every profession is judged and I, I really do appreciate that, but I don't spend my life judging these other professions, whereas in education, we are such the focal point for communities, for families, for everyone, that it can be somewhat relentless. And I think that can be a challenge at times. And it can be exhausting for school leaders and educators to constantly hear in the media, in a community that you need to do more. Teachers got to do this. Schools have got to do this. More, 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 more. No one's saying you need to do less. I mean, I think we have to be very careful that we don't overinterpret people's just because they say it doesn't mean we have to react and it doesn't mean we have to act on what they're saying. Like so, so when you're in this role where there is this constant commentary around what we could or should be doing, it's very easy to lose your agency because what you end up doing is trying to make everyone happy. And, and so you tap dance a little faster over here and you conduct this orchestra over there a bit better and you, you kind of swing around. I often think, with particularly with principals, that the role – actually has mutually exclusive elements. So you will never make everyone happy all the time. It's just actually physically and time-wise, emotionally impossible to deliver 100% happiness all the time. So once you concede that, then you get a little wiser about A, sharing the love so that everyone feels the love at some point and everyone feels a bit annoyed sometimes, but also not taking it too personally just because people commentate. I walk out of a movie that I've seen and I will critique a movie, even though I'm not a movie critic. I know nothing about the movies. The difference is that the movie director and producer, they won't hear me critiquing it. I'll go home and I'll vent to my friends or, or whatever. The difference in schools is that we hear it. Everyone has an open doorway to this relentless commentary. And a part of it is we have to make a decision about who we listen to and why, that we don't just listen to the people who make us feel good because we do need to be open to criticism and critiquing and improving. But equally, just because someone shoots their mouth off doesn't mean you have to listen to it or take it on. Or There's this old proverb that says, guard your heart for it's the wellspring of life. And I love that idea that you're not going to stone, you're not getting hard, but you are guarding your heart. And when everyone's opinion matters or, or you can respect it, but you don't have to act on it. So I think kind of recognizing that, that we have the volume button and we have the ability to screen in and out once again, not always easy. When I hear politicians get up and go, we should go back to basics. Let's teach them how to read and write. And I'm like, really? That's a good idea. Hadn't thought of that one. You know, like, tell me more how I should do my job. But the more we take it on other people's commentary, the more we disempower ourselves as a profession and as individuals. And that really is a challenge. And you're going to one of the core issues that so many big-hearted educators experience is that fear of disappointing people that fear of not being liked, that fear of being perceived as difficult. Yes. And the flip side of that is wanting to be loved because there's nothing sweeter on earth than having 200 year nine students think you're the best thing that ever walked the earth. You know? So it's very easy for us to be acting and reacting to the external cues all the time. But part of being an adult and part of growing up is, and part of taking responsibility in your role as leader 
is to go, it's not always about being loved and it's not always about is everybody happy. And so it's very easy to get swept into that vortex because it's easier to want to do what you have to do to be loved than it is, you know, to kind of have some of the hard conversations or at times to go, look, thanks very much for your opinion. I take it on board and and, uh, and we'll continue to do our job. You're reminding me of some of my early conversations as a PE teacher around selecting netball teams. And honestly, when a parent would call, I knew they were upset. They wanted their daughter in a netball team, didn't make the netball team. And the amount of conversations that went on for so too long because I was trying to work them around to get to the point where they saw my point of view. And there were some times where I couldn't handle the discomfort. I couldn't handle the challenge because they're telling me all this evidence why they need to be in the team. And then I would take them. So I'd make the team bigger. And then for the whole season, I had to deal with other parents telling me that their daughter didn't get enough court time. And it was just horrible. So I had to learn some of these lessons the really hard way over and over again. And look, they are hard. One of the things that we teach you 12 is something called transactional analysis, which is about how people interact with each other and that you basically have three modes. It was a, a form of or a framework that was modeled in, in the 1960s and that people basically come to you as parent, adult or child. And our goal the whole time is to stay in that adult mode where we're talking to each other as adults, we're respectful. Ultimately, people have the right to make their decisions about what they want to do, whether they're going to accept the information or whatever. But when you have a parent who comes to you and they're upset about the netball team, they're not acting necessarily in adult mode. Oftentimes they're in child mode, you know, stomping the feet. How dare you do this? My child's turned up to every practice. That child over there's only turned up to three and they're in the team and my kid's not. Now, if you can come at that with an adult thing, they may well be right, in which case it's worth reviewing. The chances are, if it's an emotional thing, they're coming at it, the child mode. And what the challenge for us is not to either come back at child mode ourselves or reacting emotionally, nor going into parent mode where we kind of like, well, you just have to back off and do it. You know, like you've got to do what I say. It's can you meet them adult to adult? Can you role model for anyone? This is for teachers. If you're in a leadership role, working with teachers, the staff, or with parents, and there's some young people, like role modeling for them what it means to have an adult conversation where you don't get to dictate the outcome of that conversation. Like Nobody does. And so you have to come to terms with the fact that you may have to accept an outcome that you don't like. But that's a very adult conversation. It's a very reasonable conversation to have. So a parent or an upset staff member can come to you and go, I don't agree with your decision making. Here are the reasons. Can we talk about it? And that's a very reasonable conversation to have. It's adult, adult. If they come to you and stomp their feet and cross their arms and go, how dare you? They're acting in child mode. And your challenge is to remain in adult mode, not to try and pacify them, not to get grumpy at them, not to go, oh, that mother, she always complains. You know, that's that's just us tipping out of adult mode ourselves. So it's probably a, a little bit of a complicated concept, but once you have it in your head around, is this person speaking to me adult to adult, or are they acting as if they're a child, or are they lecturing me like I'm an adult? And I've had parents walk into my my office and, and love a good barrister, you know, chest thumping, you'll do this, you'll do that. And I'm like, okay, he's in parent or she's in parent mode. I'm refusing to go into child mode. I'm refusing to go back at them. I'm going to try and hold my ground as an adult. That takes time. It takes years and years and years of practice. And I love that you highlight that, that it is a practice. It is a skill. When I take myself back to the coaching example when I had that phone call initially, I was in child mode. Please like me. Please give me a pat on the back. Please say I'm good at it. Where as I moved on in my career, 
I had enough confidence in myself and I also knew the consequences if I did have additional students in the team. And so I could come to it from a more adult perspective. And also I learned the art of delaying things, delaying conversations where in the early days, as soon as someone emailed or called, I would be on the phone straight away. But I learned, oh, this is important. You want to have a conversation about it. Let's talk about it in two days time or let's talk about it tomorrow morning. And I found that even delaying helped me be in my adult self and also the other person. Spot on. And so that that ability to be reactive, we all do. So when, when I talk in these things, it's like all of us go into these modes where you flare up. And it's really interesting when you get feedback, you know, and everyone's like, everyone needs feedback. And you're like, yeah, no, I don't actually want feedback. Thanks very much. You know, because my instinctive reaction is like, I get so hurt by it, like so hurt. And then I justify it. Like, but you don't understand, you know, this is why I acted the way I did. And this is why I said what I said. But that's, that's a child mode, right? Like, and it's a really normal, healthy part, I like to think, of being a person, right? It's can you not act out of that mode? Can you wait till that wave passes and then you're moving out of this reactive child mode into a proactive adult mode? Well, there may be elements here that I actually overreacted to or I blew out or whatever, but also we didn't follow the process that we were meant to have followed. And so when that happened, these were the implications of that. So you go into adult mode and creating a little bit of space that before, between, as we know, the, the trigger and the reaction, trying to, the discipline of trying to extend that space, that also takes practice, so much practice and reflection and the ability to step back and go, okay, what happened there? What happened there? How did I react? What did I do? They're all disciplines and they take years to develop. And it also makes me think about having spaces where you can debrief these conversations, if it's as a department level or executive, to sit down and say, I've dealt with this and this is how I reacted or responded. Can we just workshop it without feeling judgment to have those spaces to really debrief? A big part of that is the people in the room because the tendency for people in education is to fix things. Okay, so before you've even got your challenge and described it, it's out of your mouth, we've got all the solutions. If you just don't want to be thought about this, what about the, you know, and you're like, no, this is hard because it actually is also what makes a great educator because you're highly empathetic, highly quite quick at being able to pick up patterns of behavior, heuristics, understanding what schemas people have got, what belief systems they have about themselves. And so speed in education when it comes to other people is actually a really wonderful gift that if you have it, it's great. Unchecked, you actually just loop. You don't grow. Unchecked, you fix everything, but you're not leading. Unchecked, your team don't need to do anything because you're doing it all for them. You know, and even if you go, no, I'm not, you actually are, you know. And so are you really genuinely prepared to step back and go, this is not my job. I'm happy to listen to you and to talk you through or to hear what you want to say. But by and large, we're really bad at that. By and large, we will, we're boots and all. We've got the solutions. If we'd only done that, if you thought about this, what about, oh, yep, you know, you'll be great next time and off we go. We're not great at actually genuinely reflecting. And it probably circles back to that initial point of we feel loved when we're solving a problem. We feel useful. We feel like we're capable. And so to be in that discomfort, to really listen and support, it can be quite challenging. It really can. There are two things, I think. One is that the schools are not like a car conveyor belt where we're building a car where at the end of it you get demonstrable evidence 
of whether you can do your job or not. It's a long game. So we sow seeds that actually, for me, because the seeds that I that happen at my level are not the short friendship fixes and the, the things that happen socially. They're the seeds that we plant around culture that may not come to bear fruit until a person is in their 40s or 50s or 60s and they're faced with situations that none of us could have predicted and how did they respond to them and, and have they come out of that stronger and kinder and more filled with grace. I'll never see the fruits of most of what I do. But if I, could, if I fall into the trap of going, yeah, but you know I love me or you four think I'm a legend, then I get immediate gratification in a way that is lovely to have. You know, it's affirming for us to have. And so it's can we, we go, I mean, you don't want to annoy everybody. I mean, your job is not to kind of be, be setting up bombs or whatever, but, but the idea about, yes, basically you are respected and loved for what you do and you get that, but that is not your driving motivation. We actually play a long game and part of being in this profession is accepting and coming to terms with the fact that you may never know the full benefit or the full fruit of what you've seen or, or what you've sown. I think the other challenge is in school environments because it's, it is when the bombs go off, they're unpredictable and they're emotional. And so anything we can do to squash a bomb before it goes off, if something's ticking, we will do it. So we're often on top of things far quicker than we need to be just because we're just trying to control so many variables that are uncontrollable. And so if there's a problem, yep, we fixed it. Right, next thing, onto that bug fixed, right? You know, so that when there'll be one or two things that we can't fix, but we've at least fixed everything else. Whereas if we're concerned that actually bombs are going to go off and I can't control what's going on around me, that increases your anxiety levels. Most people, a huge generalization, control with that form of anxiety by trying to control their environment. And so they'll fix every problem that comes across the path. The other thing about teachers is most of them are highly, highly, highly competent. And so they actually can fix it is the upshot. It comes at a cost though, because by the time you missed to fix it, then you fixed up all these problems for you and for everybody else and for every child in your care and families and so forth, you're left this kind of like, you know, shriveled up emotional wreck <laughs> if you haven't got some of these disciplines and practices in place. That is so true. I haven't met an educator that's not capable, that's not highly motivated, that wants to go do a good job. The most common comments I get with educators is, well, I just got to do it. I've just asked other people to do it, but then they did it and they didn't do it well. So I just, just had to do it myself. And look, I'm just a workaholic. I just really find it hard to switch off. I would love to switch off, but it's just not possible. Or the other common one I get is, I'm really trying on a Sunday not to do any work, but then if it's quiet enough, long enough, I can't help myself. I just have to do something. Here's the thing. The first part is that whole let's restack the dishwasher because the person didn't stack it properly the first time. There is ego involved in that. And that sense that nobody is quite as good as you are says more about you than it does about them. Because you may well be right, but it was never the point. You were never in education. I realize this might sound a little blunt, but you were never in education to be the showpiece. It was your job to kind of help facilitate. I do think particularly in leadership, it's a little like that ice game curling. It's a little like that. We're trying to smooth the path as much as we can. But there is a reality check with this, and that is that schools are insatiable beasts, and you will never feed this beast enough. So you can throw your family, you can throw your marriage, you can throw your health, you can throw your peace of mind, you can throw your time, your friendships, you can throw pretty much anything you want into that whirlpool or into that beast's mouth, and you will never sate the beast, ever. Now, you already, 
put boundaries in place. Nobody actually works 24-7. You might work insane hours, you might work 70, 80 hour weeks, but you don't work 24-7. So you've got some boundaries in place. Now I'm gonna mix metaphors here. So picture the whirlpool, this insatiable whirlpool. You have a boundary in place. You've just got it too close to the edge. So it doesn't, it's not like put my boundaries in. You have them, you just don't, you're too close because it just means if something goes wrong, You've got no reserves. You're over the edge, right? So move the boundary back a bit. Um, There is no brownie points. There are no prizes for burning out. There are no prizes for working seven days a week. You are a far better educator for genuinely having the break. If you work seven days a week, I guarantee you are not a great educator in the sense that there is no way you are working at your best. It's just not possible. So how do you do that? How do you put those boundaries in place? Now, partly it's like goes back to this thing of you're trying to show people that you're really good, like you're trying to be on top of everything. You're trying to control everything, but the prize never goes to having the most controlled environment. You will never win that prize. The prize doesn't exist because nobody can do it. The only way that you can win in education is by learning how to accept that on a really good day, you may hit 80% on a really good day and you will never hit 80% back to back on back to back days. And if you do, I'm going to start getting worried about you. So there's, there's this whole thing around, can we just, and I know this is sort of countercultural, but can we just lower the expectations a little bit? It sounds noble. We're getting into martyr territory. And I go toward end, all right? If I quit my job here, if I left my job, they will step over the body, you know, be fantastic, farewell, I get that. And then they would get another principal and life would go on. The school will be here long after I'm dead and buried. So we're only ever a part of what is your role to keep this community bubbling along where we're investing in these beautiful young people who, if we do our job well, will grow up to have the strength of character to get through whatever life throws at them, where they'll make good informed choices about who they want to be and what they want to do in their lives. That's it. That's it. You know, there is no perfect teacher. There's no perfect school. There's no perfect parent. The rest of it is just a fallacy. And the only person who's going to pay for that is you. I think that is such a powerful reminder because one of the stories that educators tell themselves that is if I leave the school, things will fall apart. The school needs me. But the reality is if you left the school, they'll find somebody else. Spot on. I mean, look, I don't think it's an interesting kind of question around how do you, particularly when you get people who are passionate and bright who come into the profession. And if they'd gone into any other profession, there would be tangible recognition of how good they are. And in education, there's not because we're playing a long game. So sometimes I think we invent things, you know, and it's real, but we're like, okay, we now have to, if I'm really good, I'll be working around the clock. If I'm really good, I'll do this. If, if I'm really good, year four will love me, you know, and and then they're man-made things. They're, they're not real. They're nothing more than man-made things that will disappear when you disappear. So then that all sounds a little kind of fatalistic. There isn't, once you back off a little bit, I mean, it sounds wrong, but lower expectations around it, then you get the joy coming back. And then interestingly enough, the joy is the thing that is like the oil between all the cogs. It's, 
there's a, a sense of the total is greater than the sum of the parts. So you, you actually end up creating a community that is far more alive and growing and personal and engaged than if you tried to lock down and control every variable, which is our instinctive reaction when we're being lobbed with a thousand tennis balls, you know, and being top more other than it. Then it's like, okay, just do it or we give up. We sit on the sidelines and we go, we don't want to do it anymore. I go, what if you just set yourself a goal of hitting one in 10? One in 10, and then just but enjoy that one in 10. Like enjoy, be really good at it, you know? And then if you can get to two in 10, fantastic. But no one's going to get 10 out of 10. Like they're just not. There's too many coming at you and no one person can ever do that. And also just highlighting the joy that can come when we release the pressure that we're putting on ourselves that is completely unrealistic and not aligned with reality. And the other thing, particularly in leadership, is then is recognizing that you can't then hold people to account for being anything less than perfect. And that controlling perfectionism that we are so critical of in our students is rife throughout the teaching profession. Now, I know there are some people who don't want to be here and I get there are some jerks and I, I appreciate all of that. Let's just put them aside for one sec. I'm talking about most educators, certainly the ones I've dealt with, and have interacted with across all sectors are absolute not legends, but spend far too much time beating themselves up for not being perfect and then get up in assembly and say to the kids, you shouldn't be aiming for perfection. <laughs> you know, it's so, so there's this real sense of like, okay, can we just maybe apply some of that to ourselves? Maybe do a little less, but do it well and enjoy it. I, I had the privilege the other day, I was just walking across the playground and there's a tendency for principals for their diary just to get massively build up. But I was in a grumpy mood and I saw this little kid who was just sitting there and she's got cerebral palsy. And I was, we just listened. I just sat and listened to her for over an hour as she realized what it was like now as an adolescent to deal with a disability in a way that she never had to when she was little and cute and everyone kind of thought she was wonderful. And and now she's kind of not so cute. She's an adult, you know, a young adult. And privilege of listening to that young woman speak for over an hour about her life experience. If I had booked it and put it in the calendar, I'd have never had it. It was just a, one of those moments and you just went, just stop, just be there. So you have to have space for the joy. You have to have space for the connection and that doesn't happen by being timetabled into a diary. That is so true. When our diaries look like Tetris, there's not much space for magic. One of the challenges, which my team are working with at the moment, is we came back this year and I go, you have a portfolio, everyone's got a portfolio that they're responsible for. By all means, knock yourself out 50% of the time. The other 50% of the time, I want it just involved around leadership, being around the school, being present. Can they do it? Not yet. None of us can. They can. 50% might have been a bit much. But we're just looking at how do you actually go and know part of your role description is to actually do nothing and be present to be around, but without actually not being on your computer, answering emails and, and filling in, trying to work through the backlog, but actually genuinely being out and about. It's a real challenge. It's a real challenge because we've trained our nervous system to be constantly on, to be doing the next list. What's next? What's next? It's like this tick, 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 tick. And to challenge ourselves to pause, to step back, to notice, yeah. to be present, how are my staff going? How are my students going? Oh, actually, I've noticed that this staff member that's normally quite buoyant has been quite flat three days in a row. That is a skill and we need time and space to actually notice beyond our busy blinkers. Yeah, and not to begrudge it, like to understand that it's actually a core part of the role. But even even more than that, I think it's about us being responsible to ourselves at that time 
and making sure that we don't drink the Kool-Aid, you know, that we're not there. Anxiety and reactionary behaviours, they're all contagious. So once you have one person who lives in this drama mode, it's really hard not to kind of react when they're kind of in your presence. And I remember one year I was, school had broken up and, you know, being a principal, I was still here just plowing through some stuff and this email dropped in from a parent and it was like napalm. It was like a bomb just went off. They were just so angry and so blistering and questioning everything. And I'm sitting in a, in a school, in an office by myself, no one around for miles and my heart rate just goes through the roof. Like I, I'm just like, oh, and I, I kind of had to stand up and walk away and come back and read the next paragraph. And and it was so angry and grumpy. And even an email had that effect on me. And it was such a surreal moment where I looked around and I thought, there is not a person inside. And yet my heart rate has just gone through the roof reading an email that somebody sent. And it was at that moment that I realized Actually, I have to be very careful, that whole guard your heart thing. I have to be very careful about who I hang with and for how long because other people's negativity can be like kryptonite. And I can listen if they've got genuine problems, but if they're just going to loop, you know, and go round and round and keep telling you the same problems and the same challenges and not actually do anything but want me to do something, I'm like, that's not good for me. Like it's not good for my soul. It's not good for, I, I lose perspective pretty quickly. I, it feels like kryptonite, right? So I, I learned a lot by that one experience and then going, okay, what just happened there? There's not a person in sight and I'm acting as if I'm, you know, in front of a whole bunch of really grumpy people. It's so important that I distance myself from at time to times from that and I protect myself in terms of what comes in and that culturally thing that so when someone's all working up someone's all withdraw and then you come back and you go okay and and you 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 get your positive presence out it makes me sound very new agey i'm seriously not i believe in personal space and not necessarily group hugs but, but there's this sense of just you have to be able to control your heart you have to be able to control the culture and make sure that you're not getting swayed by other people's reactions and that's a beautiful swing back to thinking about that model of parent and child because maybe in that moment when you first got that email, maybe that child part of you is like, oh, I've done something wrong, I'm getting in trouble. I was just, it was such a funny contrast with the fact though that there wasn't a person around for miles and I was reacting as if they were in the room with me. You know, and teachers will react to this, you know, re- relate to this, I think, where you you have an issue with a parent or something goes wrong with a staff member or something like that and it goes over and over and over in your mind. You're just replaying it and you're trying to work out the way through it. How do you do this? And I remember going home one night, there was a particularly grumpy parent that I had at one point, uh, this is a number of decades ago now, and I was lying in bed just thinking about it. And I just had this kind of moment where I thought, well, I have just brought this person into my bedroom. It's like they're sitting at the end of my bed and I'm having this conversation with them. And I looked to my right and my husband's there, you know, snoring away. And I thought, this is weird. There's like three people in this room. There's me, my husband, and there's this parent at the end of the bed who's lecturing me. And and I'm kind of like, okay, that is it. No one walks up those stairs into my house. Like they just don't. My home is sacred. It becomes another one of those safe spaces. We don't do negativity. We don't do toxicity. Everything that's like that just stays at the door. So you do learn games that help you recognize how you're reacting if you take the time to reflect. Now that is hard because our ego always wants to defend what we've done always like there's a thousand reasons why whatever I said or however I said it was the right thing to say and was the right way to do it 
the challenge is in leadership, it's never actually about you. So there you have, I believe, a responsibility if you're in leadership to constantly be reviewing, reflecting, assessing what is my I, I you know, use the language around leadership shadows. What does my leadership shadow look like? What, where, where are the bodies behind me? What have I done there that's aided this? Now, sometimes you have to do it. Sometimes you have no choice. Um, other times you actually genuinely learn, but you've got to stop and go, okay, ego to one side. How do I actually get better? And you do you have to do it in such a way that you're not within yourself. Woe is me. I'm the worst principal ever. Anyone could do this job better than I am. That's just drama. That's that's not real. It's a, a child response again, right? But then you go, okay, what is could I do? How could I have done that differently? And you genuinely pause and think. You learn how to apologize. You learn not to fear that people are going to hold that against you. Sometimes they do. And you have to go, yeah, but it's still the right thing anyway. And how do you keep progressing and developing those skills? It's, it is the hard part. So it sounds like Becoming a skilled educator and school leader is a lot about building that self-awareness. Yes. Self-awareness and humility. Like there's just a lot of eating humble pie. In in most things when you're getting promoted, you know, people go, it's win-win. You know, you've got to try and can you get someone to a win-win situation. In leadership in schools, you have to be prepared to lose to let the other person go ahead because it's not actually about you. It's about recognizing where they are at genuinely where they're at and how do you help them take a step forward or two steps forward and that's not you doing it it's not you lecturing at them it's you genuinely connecting with where they're at and sometimes that means you lose and that brings us to that point of it's the long game or in education it's very tempting i've been there i've done it before where i've done some permanent damage in a temporary situation, instead of being able to just hold it, pause it, fair enough, you're right, I'll cop that and move on, thinking about the long-term relationship. Yes, and I think sometimes it's also just truly understanding where parents are at. Look, I've never met a parent who doesn't love their kid. How it manifests is profoundly and utterly different. So some people come up, you know, and they come out all guns blazing, some people cry, some people don't say anything. You know, there's a whole array of emotions that parents have that's quite that are quite primal you know so so a lot of it it is them acting out of this kind of like defensive advocacy and i'm talking about when things go wrong i mean a lot of things go right as well you know but this is where we feel it the most as as educators because we interpret it as failure you know this these parents on the warpath we must have done something wrong or they've done something wrong or they're always that kind of and you're like that kind of language i i understand it i really do but when you get into leadership and your responsibility is how do you come alongside someone to assist them to grow through something, it's not about you and it's not about your school. It's about what is happening in this person's world and how do they get to the point where they feel genuinely heard. And often they're not heard because we've already crafted the answer and the solution in our heads long before they walked into our rooms. You know, So it's a, it's a hard discipline. But that's where the wisdom is, right? That's where that's where the wisdom, the humility, those things that make a great educator start with practicing these kind of disciplines where you never write somebody off, you never write off a parent, you never write off anyone. And it's not that you, you're giving them uh, sympathy or the benefit of the doubt. You just go, I honor and respect the primal relationship that you have with your child. For whatever reason you're flaring, let's understand what's happening here and why. 
And sometimes they're right, you know. So it's just, it's a really interesting interesting exercise. And it's a skill. What you've been talking about today is all skills that we can learn over time that move us from that sort of childlike educator that's really quite reactive to that adult-like educator and school leader where it's mature, coming from it from a place of curiosity and thinking about long-term consequences. Counterintuitively, there's also great joy in that because you're no longer waiting to respond to things that other people do you have your agency and it does it takes decades to do this like this is so one of the things i find often with teachers is is impatience they want to be good they could just do go through this checklist and and you know tick every box and have done this course and they're, they're practiced you know mediation or they've done a bit of coaching or whatever and you go okay now i'm good and i'm like yeah no it kind of doesn't work that way right it it takes years of little micro steps, moments where you sit and sulk, moments where you pick yourself up again and off you go and you just keep challenging yourself. It's like yeast in bread. Like there are things that you can do, sure, and then you just have to wait and let this thing grow and learn and develop you. And I think you can often get outstanding young educators but the wisdom comes with age if there's commitment. So you don't necessarily have age and wisdom together. But if there is a commitment to understanding how humans work and what they do, what triggers them and how do you work with them, and then there's wisdom that comes with that. But it's not a quick fix. It takes time. Bryony, to wrap up this incredible conversation, I'd love to invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up for that? I'm up for it. I don't know if I've got any answers, but we'll just give it a go. I am inspired by young people who face extraordinary adversity and still keep walking forward. When their world has collapsed and the people that they thought they could rely on, they couldn't, and they just keep showing up. I just think it's I think they're just extraordinary people. When life feels hard. Well, two things. Personally, I go, when life feels hard for me, what do I do? I often retreat because which is not necessarily the most mature thing to do. But I, because everything is around people and stimulation, sometimes you, for me I have to retreat and just refuel by myself, you know, like or, or just with really close family and friends. And, and that's okay. That's not value. That's a it's about the most sensible thing you can do. And I think when life feels hard for others, life is hard. Like it's kind of normal to be hard and so there's no judgment in that. The issue comes when we perceive being hard as failing and the reality is, you know, I mean, you look in the Bible again, it's a silly example, but there's 150 Psalms in the Bible, 148 of them are like, woe is me, life sucks, you know, like I'm being surrounded by my enemies and no one likes me, you know, and there's about two that go, yay, life is good, you know, and I think there is a recognition that it is hard, so then what are you going to do about that? How do you get fitter? How do you get match fit? How do you get fitter as an educator. What have you got to do? I'm at the gym at the moment. Like it is really impossibly difficult. The only thing I can keep doing is keep going, you know, and just little by little consistency and you get there. An underrated skill is? Probably I think the ability to step back and to hold it all lightly, yes, which is really hard. And I'm not talking about being frivolous. I'm not talking about turning things into a joke or not taking them seriously, but from the old Stoic tradition, there are only so many things you can control. And I know these are probably much longer answers than you meant to have, but I remember listening to a, a judge from the, the family court, the family appeals court, who just said, she was talking about the situations that they get in the family court. And she was going, I can't fix the situations and the families that come towards me. 
But she said, sometimes I can do something that for 10 minutes makes the difference in the life of a child. And I said, and I'll take that 10 minutes over not having anything. And so I do think that being able to hold it lightly and understand that we actually can't save every family and rescue every child, but we can do something. And if we all just did a little something, then that child's experience becomes a little better than it was if you hadn't have done that. And I am looking forward to... I'm really looking forward to this year. It already feels different in the sense that here in Australia, at least, I know your podcast probably goes everywhere, but here in Australia, at least, we've had our first summer break where we haven't had air pollution, fires, floods, you know, famine, pestilence, you know, or the whole kind of kit and caboodle. So people actually have returned, having completely forgotten about all the protocols. So, you know, there's a whole like back to basics things, but also having actually genuinely had a rest. And I'm really looking forward to the profession this year, recognizing that the agency is theirs. They're now recovered, they're rested, they're ready to go. What does that look like for them? So there's a lot of hope. It's great. Brani, thank you so much for being a leader that we can look to as a role model, someone who's curious, open and deeply passionate about your work. And thank you for being a guest on the School of Wellbeing today. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode and I look forward to returning with new episodes of the School of Wellbeing from Friday the 19th of January. Until then, take care and take deliberate action.